your name today um, got a few announcements here if you'll be turning in the church bible this morning to page 1305 1305 toward the back end of the bible there in the church bibles there 
A real quick uh, reminder on the Feast of Trumpets Fellowship coming up a week from today at 6 p.m. in the evening. And we do need sign-ups. There's one on each table in the back as you leave today for a head count for the meal. If you wouldn't mind signing up for that, if you plan on joining us, we invite you to join us for that. It's a great time of celebration. Um, still on the prayer list, we continue to lift these uh, families and these individuals up. Raul Jr., continue to pray for him and his treatment. Kylie, um, <clears throat> Lee Martin, uh, and uh, Martin Felicia. We keep him on the prayer list too, so, and the family. So we'll just continue to pray for these families as um, the Lord works in mighty ways we pray in difficult situations. Look, that's where he shows up best. Today we're going to be reading Romans 12, uh, 1 through 5. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we may have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we bless you for <clears throat> this time we can come and give you worship, give you praise, and give you honor. Uh, we've already seen you work in many of these prayer requests, so we know, Lord, that your plan is still perfect for each each one of these individuals that is going through these difficulties right now. So, God, I pray you continue to uh, to work in a mighty way in these families. Lord, uh, we pray that you would be with us as we celebrate this next week, as we anticipate this Feast of Trumpets, Lord, the time, that the appointed time that Almighty, Jesus, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, will return. We don't know if it's this year. We never know what year it is, but Lord, we know the appointed time. So we bless you for what you've taught us and how we can anticipate this as, a, as an exciting time and one to be treasured for the future. We bless you for uh, time together, Lord, in your word, the challenges we get um, to remain committed, that we would remain committed to your way in your will, your good and perfect will each day, Lord, that we could just, if nothing else, review a scripture like this every day before we get going, Lord, so that we could live in a way that would put us in humility, would help us to place others and their needs above ours, and Lord, would uh, always be in touch and in step with your will for our life. We bless you for this amazing time together. Uh, Lord, as we get as we continue to praise your name, I pray that, Lord, above all, uh, not our will, but your will be done here and in our lives. We bless you. In your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
deserve it all. Come, let us remember what our King has done. Let us remember His everlasting love. Let us remember He alone has overcome.
There's a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed The victory is won He is risen from the dead And I will rise When He calls my name No more sorrow No more pain I will There's a day that's drawing near When this darkness breaks to light And the shadows disappear And my faith shall be my eyes Jesus has and the grave is overwhelmed The victory is won He is risen from the dead And I will rise when He calls my name No more sorrow
good morning, my friends. I am so glad to be with y'all today and to, uh, to share this word. Um, I'm so grateful for the songs that we have sung and for the scripture that Bill brought for us and for the prayers that have been made. And I believe that they are in accordance with God's purpose for today. And that's exactly where we want to be. We want to hear God's word. And, uh, and we want to understand it that he might be glorified. So many of the songs that we sang even talked about God's purpose and God's will and his glory. It is a lie that the world has received that things are about us. That they are about our glory and our purpose and our way. Though our flesh may want those things, we know, each one of us, that those ways only lead to destruction. And so I pray that we would be a unified body this morning, that we would desire the Lord's way. So we'll begin in Genesis chapter 50, if you're in the church's Bible, on page 60. Genesis chapter 50, in the church's Bible, on page 60. Have you ever heard the phrase, what the enemy means for evil, God means for good? Or what the enemy means for evil, God will turn out for good. Anybody heard that? Um, it is rooted in scripture, but it is an idea that is easily grabbed a hold of and very dangerous. We can be in a tough spot in our lives. We can know people with serious illness. And we can hope that what the enemy has meant for evil, God will simply turn around for good. It's especially dangerous because if not fully understood, it brings doubt to non-believers and believers alike that when things don't work out the way we want them to, that when situations aren't redeemed, when people aren't healed, when things aren't fixed, when the world continues to be broken, where is God in this world? But God is exactly where he has always been. God is on his throne. And to a people that are in a broken city, in a broken world, I believe the, world, the Lord wants to speak to us to, to say this, that he has sent his son into a broken world to redeem mankind for his purpose. In Genesis, there is the story of Joseph. Joseph is a man who we probably know really well. Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons, in fact, he was Jacob's favorite son. So Jacob gave Joseph a special coat, and his brothers were supremely jealous of this. So what they did was they took Joseph and his coat, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph was a hard worker, and the Lord had given him great wisdom and spiritual insight. So Joseph's life would flip back and forth from chaos to success, and from being least to being greatest. There are two major schools of thought on Joseph. 
many see Joseph as a hero of sorts whose brothers were out to get him. Joseph was a great guy who simply got a raw deal. But that's okay because God honored Joseph's good work ethic, right? And eventually elevated him to be the governor of Egypt and restored what the locusts have eaten. This is one school of thought about Joseph. The other is that Joseph was a man whom God had a call on his life. Joseph was also a man who was prideful about the call he had received from the Lord and the favor he had from his father. God did have a plan for Joseph, which included working some of these places out in Joseph. And eventually, Joseph would be useful to the Lord for a great plan of salvation for many people. It's really interesting how close but very different these understandings are, aren't they? See, the first is certainly the dominant popular opinion. It allows for people to play victim in a broken world, avoiding accountability but remaining ever positive that God has a plan and that God will work out his plan in the end for those who love him. The second view is a much more minority view. It means that even for those of us in deep relationship with the Lord, we are held accountable. That God in his love uses circumstances to deliver us from evil and to accomplish his plan. At the end of Joseph's life, he was able to share with his brothers who had betrayed him when he was a young man what God had done. Let's, let's read this in chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 20. Joseph is before his brothers, and he says, But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is to this day, to save many people alive. Joseph wasn't just reconciling with his brothers. He wasn't fellowshipping with them, so to speak. Jacob was telling them, excuse me, Joseph was telling them, what God had done through the circumstances of his life. Joseph was telling them that God used all of these extreme measures to turn him into the God-fearing man, God-submitted man, the prideless man, the proudless man, the arrogantless man that he was at that point. And in that way, God brought about the salvation to many other people. He says that, that God meant these things for good. Sure doesn't sound like it, does it? It sure doesn't sound like Joseph, a man who would be in slavery in Egypt, would end up being a slave in a man named Potiphar's house, a man who would be accused of adultery for which he had no part, a man who would be in a dungeon for years. Doesn't sound like those are good things, does it? But good is not a word that is according to our way, but God's way. Good is the word God uses when he creates all things. And he said, these things are good because they are according to the way that I want them to function and purpose. 
God is going to accomplish his plan, and we can either be a part of it or in spite of it. Properly understood, this story isn't about Joseph at all, is it? It's about the Lord and his plan being fulfilled. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 in the church's Bible on page 1348. Philippians chapter 1, page 1348. We've been studying in Philippians for a few weeks, and we've been studying about this man, Paul. And Paul's circumstances are very similar to Joseph. Paul is in prison, and though things seem dire... Paul wants everyone to know that what has been meant for evil, what seems like evil against him, God means it for good. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Let's read verses 12 through 18 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, which actually turned out, excuse me, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So we've we've talked about how Philippians is a letter, and this is a very common part of every letter. So if you, if you remember last week, we talked about how Paul gave, the, gave this great greeting that included prayers, that included direction that the body of Christ was to be in fellowship with the Spirit so they could be in fellowship with one another. Now Paul is giving an update. Like a kid who's reporting on how things are going at camp, except in this case... The kids' parents are very concerned, right? You remember that the Philippian church sent this man, Epaphroditus, to Paul who is in prison to bring financial support and really just to support him physically. And so Paul is telling them what is going on. He's giving a status update. He tells them this. He says, I'm in prison, but it's working out because the gospel is being preached, Even the Praetorian Guard, these are the emperor's own troops. The gospel is being known among these. Paul's confidence and his his peace, though imprisoned, would encourage others to preach. So Paul first talks about the gospel being spread in prison, and now he's talking about it being spread out of prison. So he says that some of these that preach are jealous of him. They're selfish. They just want to be noticed. Others that preach do it out of goodness and selflessness, 
out of agape love, love that is not conditioned based upon what they want. Considering all this, though he is in prison and there are some wild preachers, Paul says Christ is being proclaimed. Most Bibles have a a subheading above verse 12 that says something like Christ is preached or Paul's joy is that Christ is being preached. I believe that Paul is giving an update a little more specific than that. He's giving an update to a group of people who are deeply concerned about him. We gloss over the simplicity of Paul being in prison, but Paul is saying, don't worry, everything is fine, God is in control, the gospel is being proclaimed. This is to say, I may be in prison, but all is going according to God's plan. We don't talk like this, do we? We don't share about God in our life and how his work is happening amongst terrible situations. I believe what the Lord wants us to understand today is it is all about motive. Paul doesn't tell them, what a shame, I've been wrongfully imprisoned. You guys should see the size of the rats here in prison. Sure wish I was back in Jerusalem. They had much better prison food than here in Rome. Not even to say, I'm sure glad you sent Epaphroditus because now I'm not lonely, but I've got someone to fellowship, hang out, and talk. No, not at all. Paul expresses his motivation, and it is the gospel and the gospel alone. He says in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Not just that the gospel is being preached, but that it's growing. It has been strengthened. God is gaining momentum in the gospel where I am because I am in prison. Not in spite of it. Right? See, we want to make everything in spite of our circumstances. Well, what what the enemy meant for evil, I pray that God would do some good out of this. We are missing out on the Lord's purpose if that's our motivation. It's because Paul doesn't have a destination. He doesn't have an objective. He has a motivation. And the result is that the gospel is being shared. And so he talks about it in two ways. He talks about it in the prison, and he talks about it going outside the prison. So inside the prison, in verse 13, he says, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul is saying he is no ordinary prisoner, and this has been made clear to everyone around him. We read about Paul, and we assume he's kind of a big deal, that everyone knows him, that they're shaking his hands, that they're glad to see him. This isn't the case. Paul is the pariah of prisoners. He is relying on his Roman citizenship to bring his case before the emperor for God's purpose. But even in those situations, the gospel is being preached. Our translation here in verse 13 uses the word evident. This means known for what it really is. 
See, Paul's gospel, the Lord's gospel, is being known for what it truly is. On the surface, he could seem miserable. The circumstances could seem so. But he explains he is no ordinary prisoner, and all within the prison understood this because he was able to minister to them. We can't mix this up with workplace pleasantries or just saying, well, bless the Lord for what he does or he's done this in my life. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about it being evidence to others that his circumstances don't dictate who God is in his life, but that the Lord and Lord alone is his motivation. And because of this, the guards who are sworn to protect the, enemy, the emperor from evil have come to know Jesus. Paul uses this unique opportunity with a captive audience to share about the Lord. So you have these powerful praetorian guards, scared of no one, affected by no one, interested in no one but the emperor, who have come to know the king of kings and the lord of lords. So the part of the letter where the kid tells his parents how camp is going, what they did that day, how they scraped their knee, bad things that have happened, good things that have happened, all things about them, Paul says it's about the gospel. Paul doesn't care about himself. He doesn't care how he looks. He doesn't care how he sounds. He doesn't care what others think. He cares that the gospel is being proclaimed and people are coming to know Jesus. Next, he talks about outside the prison. There are those who have been inspired by Paul, who have been encouraged by him, who have seen this man in prison who seems like he's on top of the world. And because of this, the power of the gospel is empowering them to leave and preach everywhere. So let's read the second half of verse 14. He says, By my chains are much, excuse me, let's just read the whole verse, verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become more confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now it's this group that often gets top billing in this passage. I've frequently heard this passage used as a defense for disagreements within the church or acceptance of controversial ideas. Well, let's read a few verses to understand what we're saying here. Let's read verses 15, 16, and 17. Paul says, Some preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add afflictions, affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in every pretense, Christ is preached, and I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So most read this passage, and they focus on this idea that Christ is being preached, right? So no matter what it is, if it's bad, if it's wrong, if it's incorrect, it's okay because Christ, Christ is being preached, right? So we shouldn't have disagreements in the church. We should accept controversial ideas that were being taught. It's as if Paul's answer for bad theology and behavior by church leaders is just to be okay because in some way, Christ is being preached. Now, does this sound at all 
like the Apostle Paul we know? Does this sound at all like a servant of the Most High God who is in prison defending the gospel? So I want to look at two places where Paul comes against those who aim to manipulate the gospel. Turn a few pages to your left to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, page 1337. So the church in Galatia is the only letter that Paul wrote where he didn't give an expression of thanks or praise at the beginning. You know, Paul follows the blueprint for letter writing, which always includes some kind of, I thank the Lord for you, or I'm so grateful for what you're doing. But Paul doesn't do that in the letter to the Galatians. He is stern and direct and cuts to the quick of his point. They are turning away from the gospel which was preached to them. And Paul has none of it. Read with me verses 6 through 10. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want you to pervert the gospel of Christ. Excuse me, not want you, want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For now, I pers- for now do I persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant. Paul clearly tells the Galatians that this gospel that they are receiving is no gospel at all. It is not real. There isn't a second gospel or a different gospel or a fresh take on what was given to them. This is an illegitimate gospel. That these people were not just troubling the Galatians, but their sole purpose was to bring trouble among God's people. It was a distortion of the true gospel. Paul also says that if anyone, even an angel, preaches any gospel other than what has been given, that they should be cursed. This is a pretty weighty judgment Paul gives for these that would speak anything other than the truth of Jesus Christ. Turn a few more pages to the left to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, page 1334. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here in Corinth is a group of false apostles who had infiltrated the church and even tried to belittle Paul. 
Paul responds to some of their accusations in this letter. They were saying things like, you know, Paul writes these great letters, but in person, he's weak of stature, he's scrawny, he's not impressive, and his preaching is terrible, he's a bad communicator, things like that. Paul doesn't really care to respond to any of that. Instead, he wants to clear up some false apostleship that they had brought in. Read with me verses 10 through 15. Paul says, And the truth of Christ is in me. No one shall stop me from boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will continue, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. No wonder, for Satan himself transforms into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Paul's concern has nothing to do with his image or his self-preservation, clearing up that he's a good speaker or that he's stronger than he looks. Paul's concern is to say there are those that you have let in that are not of Jesus. They're bringing in the lies and deceit, and they're claiming to be apostles. He says, I care for you, I love you, and I'm not going to sacrifice what the Lord has given to me to share. These that would do likewise, let them be judged according to their works. So for these that are bringing in false truths to the church, Paul has weighty judgments, does he not? He gives them over to the enemy. He wants nothing to do with them. So let's turn back to Philippians uh, chapter 1, page 1348. So if Paul is so hard on these that are not speaking in truth, it's not just ironic or interesting, it's preposterous to assume that Paul is just okay with the gospel being preached. It's ridiculous to assume that Paul would hear an untruth and just go, well, that's okay. I'm sure there's something good in that. I'm sure in some way Jesus is being elevated. I'm sure this is okay, and that's okay, and, you know, if you want to do things that way and believe things that way, that is all okay. That is a lie. That is an untruth. That is a heresy itself. Let's read again these verses that we've read, verses 14 through 17. Paul says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is being preached? And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. 
So we read two different types of preachers here. And I say preacher because they're preaching or sharing the gospel. It doesn't necessarily mean that these are those that were in a congregation. They could have been in the square. They could have been sharing about Jesus with their friends, right? Paul doesn't make that distinction. What he says is, there are those that have seen me in prison who have been encouraged by the Spirit and who are going out to share the things that they have seen about Jesus the Christ. So he describes two different types of people. The first, do not have pure motives, but act out of jealousy and pride. They're in competition with Paul and others. The second are pure and preach with goodness and love. They are co-laborers with Paul. What's amazing to me is that Paul makes no mention of their content. He doesn't say that either groups have bad theology or have mistaught something, does he? He doesn't say anything other than Christ is preached. What I believe the Lord has shown me is that while Paul is writing about believers in Rome, he's much more concerned with the believers in the Philippian church. They're all preaching, right? This Philippian church are all sharing about Jesus. Their message is consistent with what Paul first gave. Otherwise, Paul would be rebuking them, wouldn't he? But he's not. He is concerned with their motive, with their motivation. He writes to this church and he says, I've seen some amazing things. I have seen God working despite the worst of circumstances. But let me tell you, these people are motivated in two different ways. He's describing people that I believe we would not notice a difference between. These are people like you and I. These are people like Daniel this week and maybe Daniel last week. People that are not bad communicators or don't have the proper language, but people that have gone from one to the other, from following the Spirit to following their flesh. From following the Spirit in love and sincerity and purity to choosing to align with the flesh, to be themselves glorified, to themselves feel righteous, to themselves be made high among men. He's describing spiritually what God sees and what the Spirit has shown him. What he sees is their heart. And I know that's another great verse that we say that God knows our heart. And you all know how I feel about this verse because just to say those words alone makes me tremble that God alone truly knows my heart. That while the gospel may be being preached, while I may assume in the things that I do in my life that I'm doing the right thing, God knows my motive. God knows truly what I'm about. And just because I was about one thing last week does not mean that I can't be about another this week. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 21. 
the church's Bible page 749, Proverbs 21. One of my favorite passages, my favorite scriptures, is here in Proverbs 21. Because it's, it's a litmus test, it's a mirror, and it's a reminder every time I read it. Solomon says in 21 verse 2, he says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. He doesn't just say that the Lord knows our heart, but he said the Lord weighs the heart. Paul is warning the Philippians. He's telling them that ministry is not a competition. God's truth is not to be trademarked, patterned, or monetized. The Spirit's leadership is not so we can feel good about what we've shared or prideful about what we know or superior because of the gifts we might possess. I believe Paul is exposing what can become not just troubling, but destructive in the church. That if we are motivated by jealousy, pride, and selfishness, then we will welcome trouble and destruction in the body. It's why Paul begins this letter to talk about the need for us to be slaves committed to Christ. For us to be saints set apart for his purpose. For us to be in fellowship and unity first with the Spirit so that we can have any fellowship with believers. And if we are not in fellowship with the Spirit to be fellowship with believers, then make no mistake, our motives will be impure. Our motives will be selfish. Our motives will be proud. Instead, Paul wants us to be pure of heart. He wants us to be ministering in love that's not conditioned by our conditions, knowing that we are shared defenders like Paul of the gospel. We're not just sharing the gospel. We're not just talking to believers about our faith. We are defending what God has done in our lives and what the gospel can do for the body. Turn back to Philippians 1. We'll read, we'll read one more scripture. Philippians 1, page 1348. To conclude these points he's making, Paul says in 18... He says, what then? To say, what matters at this point? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is being preached. And in this I rejoice and I will rejoice. What I believe Paul is saying here is that God is going to get to the motive of those who are truly following him. And if our motives are not for the Lord, he'll deal with us. But for right now, 
the gospel is being preached. He's also making another point that this is his concern, right? His concern is that the gospel is going forth. It's not the rats in prison. It's not the food. It's not the fellowship. It is the gospel. Everything comes under this umbrella for Paul. He's giving us a blueprint and describing what purity and love for brothers and sisters in Christ means. That the priority is to be for the gospel and not for ourselves. Paul's message begins and ends with the gospel. He tells us at the beginning of this passage that don't worry, all is working out for the gospel. And at the end, even among some bad stuff, don't worry, Christ is being preached. That is his concern from sunrise to sunset. I am so grateful for these places because what the Lord has helped me to understand is motive. It has changed my perspective on circumstances. It's why we began talking about Joseph at the beginning, not just to understand that, um, that it's true that, that God does desire to do his purpose for what the enemy meant for harm, but equally because we have two men that seem like they have similar circumstances, don't we? We have two men that are in prison. Genesis doesn't share much about Joseph's motive, does it? But we see him go from dark situation to dark situation. We don't see a man that it says, oh, but Joseph was in good spirits, continually being grateful for what the Lord was doing. No, we read that God gave him favor to accomplish his end. I believe Joseph was a man whose motive was not where God wanted it, but God got it there. We read of a man named Paul whose motive was in the right place. In both places, God did his purpose. I believe the Lord puts before us today two motives to follow. We can be in circumstances like Joseph that are our own doing, that God's desire is to use to free us from spirits, to bring about change in our lives, that we might surrender to him and that he might be glorified. Or we might be like Paul, where God has led us into a place, not because of what we've done, but for his purpose. And it may be uncomfortable, and it may be difficult, but make no mistake, God will be glorified in it. Today, whether we are in, we are in Joseph's camp or Paul's camp, the Lord is calling us to one motive, that his purpose be fulfilled and his truth be shared. Amen.
Yes, I 